The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Professor Isa Blumi, who is Senior Lecturer of Turkish Studies at the Stockholm University Institute and author of Destroying Yemen, What Chaos in Arabia Tells Us About the World. Thanks for returning to Geopolitics and Empire, Isa. It's been too long. How are you doing? Uh, well, it's nice to be back. Uh, unfortunately, the topic, the theme is very, rather depressing. Uh, and I'm not a depressed person, but it's always frustrating to have to always uh, talk about the bad news. But um, I think it, uh, in the case of Yemen, there's so little attention in respect to Yemen and what's going on there that um, I'm actually quite grateful that you are interested in hearing what I have to say about it. Yeah, and on that note that you said, uh, it would have been good if we... Uh, didn't have to, you know, talk about this, do this this podcast today. It would have been good if uh, the, the war in Yemen uh, would have been over. Uh, I think we spoke two or three years ago. And so uh, it, it just keeps going on. And uh, as I said, it's been a few years since I read your book uh, and interviewed you. And, you know, what really stands clear in my mind is that this is a war of uh, imperialism, uh, Saudi aggression, a, a power play backed, of course, by the Anglo-American and European establishments. Yemen has basically been on mute out of the news cycle for years. Could you refresh sort of everyone's memories as to, uh, you know, essentially what the war on Yemen is is really about? Uh, sure. Uh, firstly, it is always crucial to remember that uh, all of these crises that we are facing and observing today have deep roots, historic roots. And uh, as I tried to lay out in the book, um, for at least 60, 70 years, empire has sought to uh, secure influence over the direction in which a very rich part of the uh, Arab world, the Indian Ocean world, would be uh, integrated into the global economy in which the North Atlantic powers were mastering at the time. And they've always faced uh, resistance. Uh, Yemenis have uh, a much deeper and older uh, connection to the larger global economy in under very different terms than anything that came out of North Atlantic, for sure. And uh, they have uh, some enduring principles that were hard to break um, uh, eventually cynically broken apart in the late 1970s by a military dictatorship that had been brought with some support um, uh, into an area called northern Yemen, uh, which was at this stage, this part of the Arabian Peninsula had still been divided between uh, north Yemen and southern Yemen. In the 70s already, southern Yemen had become quite notorious as a very independent Marxist state, somewhat isolated from the larger world. And northern Yemen uh, had to endure uh, a period of, let's say, uh, underdevelopment. Uh, it's a country that remained very much outside of the global economy in the 19th and 20th centuries. Only due to Nasser's invasion in the 1960s did it, re uh, for, for the first time, have a central bank that used uh, bank-issued uh, currency notes instead of operating on a day-to-day -day basis with gold and silver coin. So uh, it's a very interesting uh, longer story to the crisis that by 2010, the end of the Cold War uh, corresponded with the actual integration of the two Yemens into a unified state, very much at the behest of uh, and support of the uh, Bush senior uh, government, uh, Bush, when he was still a vice president of the United States under the Reagan administration, had actually gone down to southern Arabia and recruited Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, helped um, integrate Hunt Oil out of Oklahoma, uh, it opened its first wells, and even though oil was at around $12, $12, $13 a barrel at that stage, it made no economic sense whatsoever. Uh, there was clearly a, a larger, longer-term investment in Yemen, with, which corresponded in 1986 with the signing of this Hunt Oil Agreement in northern Yemen, with the understanding that much of the known geological profile of this part of the world connected, it's important to stress, with the Horn of Africa. Geologically, the Horn of Africa and Yemen are part of the same uh, geological space that shares the, uh, some of the geological uh, qualities, which means lots of oil and lots of natural gas uh, that separates um, Africa from Arabia. 
that all would be uh, um, something, let's say, put into the freezer in terms of uh, a future zone of development once the conditions were correct and right. And in 86, indeed, you see a coup in southern Yemen. The old re uh, Marxist regime uh, becomes quite frail. And ultimately, uh, through this partnership with northern Yemen, uh, the two countries are unified, hereby allowing for, by 1990-91, the dictator or military man of choice, Ali Abdullah Saleh, to start to venture into forcefully integrating and then uh, unifying the country, but also in a way that would assure that Yemen start to be integrated into the global economy. Uh, this was often frustrated by uh, pricing fluctuations, crises in other parts of the Middle East, uh, and still uh, the availability of much more cheaper to produce much more profitable sources of fuel, of energy elsewhere in the region. By 2010-2011, uh, the conditions in the larger region were clearly going through a transition, what we associate these days with the Arab Spring. It also applies to Yemen. The dictatorship or the regime under Ali Abdullah Saleh had evolved over the, the, the previous 20 years to become a quite cynical, uh, very corrupted state with much of Yemen's uh, seemingly modest uh, uh, economy being sequestered to pay uh, and corrupt uh, powerful interests, a couple of powerful families. And the, the 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 leader of the of the entire republic itself, Ali Abdullah, Ali Abdullah Saleh. But like what happened in Egypt or Tunisia or in Syria, and certainly with uh, the the inability to rehabilitate Iraq after America's invasion, societies in all these countries were highly um, unstable. Um, economic conditions, the effect of shifting global economies. The fact in Yemen, for instance, that large numbers of Yemenis who used to work in the uh, Gulf, in the oil-producing parts of the Arabian Peninsula, had been um, uh, in increasingly replaced by cheaper uh, labor sources or out of concerns for security in Saudi Arabia or in the UAE, actually deported back to Yemen, had put additional strain on a, 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 an Yemeni economy that could not without industrialization, without uh, the fair access to its plentiful farmlands in the north, uh, made it very difficult for large numbers of people who found themselves living in slums of the major cities. They became perfect candidates for uh, a revolt. And much like in Egypt or Tunisia, uh, or to a lesser extent Syria, uh, there were there was a moment in time when uh, it, regime change was considered not only a possibility but uh, a, a, a destiny, a, a destination in which, in the case of Yemen, uh, in Egypt, and elsewhere, uh, uh, the Americans and their regional allies were not quite sure where it would go if indeed a popular uprising took place, as it did in late 2010-2011. And one of the consequences of not having full control over who were um, actually mobilizing people on the streets. You had a split, uh, maybe in, in three different directions, uh, uh, factions in the larger uh, context of a regime change in Yemen. By middle of 2011, you had a, a, a very influential, well-connected uh, cadre of youth leaders associated and linked to Qatar, and Turkey through the Clinton administration, um, who had cultivated strong relations with Qatar already, along with the neocons who had long made alliances with the Clintonites, uh, and now under the Obama administration had successfully, let's say, propped up um, uh, uh, regimes, let's say, transitional regimes in Tunisia, in Egypt, and they were hoping in Syria and in Yemen that would assure that they, their um, project, if you will, for a new American century. Um, this is also, of course, playing out itself out in the Orange Revolution in Ukraine and other post-Soviet states in Central Asia. Uh, very much integrated, uh, uh, say, controlled demolition of an old uh, system that had proven to be no longer sustainable 
in the Middle East through uh, dictators of uh, uh, convenience in the past. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. And the problem is, is that in Yemen, especially, but in other parts of the Arab world, uh, you did have uh, rivals to the preferred uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliate uh, groups that had um, won at least uh, American uh, support at the beginning. In the case of uh, Yemen, uh, one of the charismatic faces of the Islah Party and the Muslim Brotherhood a larger coalition that was celebrated by the Americans as uh, successors to Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, Tawakul uh, Karman was one of those um, uh, kind of charismatic uh, young leaders uh, trained in this infrastructure of developing a new generation of leaders around the world, uh, synonymous with caravan, uh, uh, sorry, canvas, um, uh, this school um, that became notorious in training uh, young leaders throughout the Arab world and Latin America, um, uh, uh, even granted the, the, the Nobel Peace Prize at this stage, was, however, uh, uh, a notorious bigot. And somebody who, again, championed uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Qatari's uh, Turkish causes uh, uh, started to instigate not only regionalism inside of Yemen, which is a very bad move, politically speaking, but also sectarianism. And this is something that was rejected by significant numbers of Yemenis, one who were either um, hoping for a redirection uh, of a unified Yemeni state that would allow for the former uh, regions of, this, of South Yemen to secure, once again, their rightful place in um, the distribution of uh, Yemen's wealth, which primarily at this stage, the developed energy assets were all located in the former southern Yemen uh, territories. Uh, and yet southern Yemen was more or less being colonized now by uh, northern Yemenis who outnumber in terms of population uh, six to one, I think, the, the, the calculation is. And two, um, the uh, very poor, largely uprooted populations of the far north of Yemen around the borders of, uh, with uh, a, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the areas that are associated uh, in Western scholarship and, and journalism with uh, the uh, affiliates to the Houthis, who by the middle of this uh, transitional period, 2011, 2012, uh, became a part of a larger uh, coalition of quite a number of different groups, whether they be old Nasserists or Baathists, supporters of uh, uh, pan-Arabism. Um, who were both Shia as well as Sunni, uh, began to recognize that uh, Yemen would be basically captured by assets of the United States and their uh, uh, intermediaries in Qatar. And this was something that they would uh, oppose. And uh, it was basically made clear that uh, the, uh, the direction in which a post-Arab spring uh, Yemen was taking was something that was quite dangerously leading towards civil war.
or, or, or a conflict between these competing visions, if you will. And uh, with their power, using the United Nations, using uh, international organizations, the very fact that Yemen was in a financial crisis at the time, uh, the uh, Americans and the broad coalition of allies they put together that included GCC countries, especially uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE, imposed an interim government under a man named Mansour uh, Hadi, who was vice president under Ali Abdullah Saleh for many, many uh, uh, years prior to 2010, 2011. And so from 2012, uh, they initiated and actually were cynical enough to actually have a referendum. We will allow Yemenis to choose whether or not they want to accept this interim government. Of course, they didn't allow anyone to compete against their selected guy. He was quite a a weak character in general, but clearly he was a puppet at this stage. And he actually was um, um, the the European-American UN alliance said that he was actually a legitimate government because he was voted in, even though there was no one competing against him. As I always say, that if they put a donkey up against him, people of Yemen would have voted for the donkey. Um, and for the next two years, even though he did not receive a mandate, even though the parliament was not allowed to, uh, to um, come back to session, even though there were representatives who had been elected in the previous election, prior to 2011, they were demanding that they and the constitution should take precedent over this now imposed interim government. The problem ultimately became quite clear very quickly. One of the first acts, this new interim government, which was now recognized as as the legitimate government of Yemen, uh, representing Yemen in the international forum, was to integrate Yemen and join the uh, World Trade Organization is something that many Yemenis on principle uh, refused to do in the past. Next, the uh, IMF sent their, uh, their boys and girls down to uh, talk with this puppet regime, with the American embassy playing an important intermediary role, and they start to sign papers away, left and right, borrowing money, agreeing to start privatizing large amounts of uh, Yemeni assets, a kind of classic IMF a relationship with any country that is desperately in need of credit. All kinds of concessions which fundamentally undermined uh, Yemeni sovereignty. So what this is ultimately doing is that it also leads to uh, Hadi then going after some of the assets that were deemed of of primary value and interest, especially to Saudi and Qatari ones. Uh, The UAE had long benefited from a good relationship with Ali Abdullah Saleh. Uh, up until the uh, Arab Spring of 2011. Uh, Dubai Ports World was a primary investor in uh, developing infrastructure, which in many ways promised to make Yemen a very important um, intermediary zone for UAE commercial expansion. It was also deemed to be crucial for the long-term Arabian Peninsula's survival in this era is a global reset, which we are all being told now is in the process of happening. There was indeed a vision to actually integrate Yemen and therefore the larger Arabian Peninsula with Africa through a bridge, a bridge that would link Djibouti with uh, Yemen that would allow for trains, trucks, and pipelines to bring desperately needed fresh water. It would have integrated uh, the highlands of Ethiopia into the uh, Arabian Peninsula's economies. It would have completely transformed uh, Arabian Peninsula's relationship with uh, the global economy itself. Plenty of opportunities for money to be made in construction projects. In many ways, the whole Saudi Arabia project of 2030, which we have maybe have heard about, developing the Red Sea, was predicated on Yemen being part of this larger envisioned integration of Eastern Africa with Arabia. East Africa would be the farmlands, the, providing the labor, the, the cheap uh, food security that the Arabia Peninsula would need. And in the meantime, uh, Arabian finance would uh, develop East Africa. That could not happen because of, of 2008 financial crisis. 
it uh, undermined it and basically destroyed the bin Laden groups uh, that one of the main uh, architects who were designing these projects uh, along the coast of the Saudi Red Sea and uh, integrating Yemen. All of this was up for grabs by 2012. And here is this Hadi who seems to be in the pocket of both Saudi Arabia and or Qatar um, receiving orders from the American embassy. Not only signing up with the IMF and, and borrowing huge amounts of money, and agreeing to undermine Yemeni sovereignty, selling off uh, public lands uh, uh, to private investment, but also ripping up previous contracts with Dubai Ports World, which immediately started the signal that uh, there, in fact, something else is up in the larger context of the Arabian Peninsula, that Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE are competitors. And they're competitors for a number of things, which maybe is too long to explain uh, in, for this purpose here. But by 2012, 2013, they're competing over who's going to se secure the, the, the lion's share of the wealth that Yemen um, has inherently as a strategic location, but also to its potential as a major producer of oil and gas, largely unexplored yet. Much of the uh, um, exploratory blocks that you can you can look at when you look at maps that oil companies have about Yemen have not yet been explored. The few places where they have explored, they have found lots of oil and gas, and they know that there's tons of it off the shore of Yemen. So a huge bonanza of wealth awaiting for any country that could secure uh, access to these, uh, uh, to, to these regions. And it so happened that by 2014, with now Hadi, this puppet uh, uh, interim government uh, taking orders from the Americans, are now even uh, proposing and indeed in, uh, would um, actually implement the federation of Yemeni territories, breaking up Yemen into six distinctive blocks in which the lion's share of all the oil and gas would go to one particular block where there would be less than a million people living, while the vast majority of the 30 million other uh, Yemenis living in now resource-poor uh, other federated zones uh, basically guaranteed that the much more populated northern parts of Yemen would be forever impoverished and never gain access to the potential of a unified Yemen's uh, future. And that's what initiated Ansar Allah, this new coalition of across various uh, political spectrums, uh, staging a coup, removing this puppet regime, uh, basically arresting this man for, uh, without going through uh, parliament, signing off Yemen's future, selling off much of its primary uh, assets to the, uh, to, in a very corrupt way. He was therefore arrested and he actually resigned. Uh, and it was in the process in which the UN sent down a, a negotiator to help try to bring all the parties together to actually actually meet around the table to decide when they could actually have the next elections. And they were very close to actually coming to that agreement when the Americans pulled the plug on this and decided that this Hadi, our interim puppet, uh, needs to be reinstated. He is the recognized uh, legitimate ruler over Yemen. And we can only move forward when he's put back in power. Um, that's basically the red line that was very conveniently laid out, clearly impossible politically to allow in the northern Yemen, parts of Yemen, and for a large group of southern Yemenis at this stage who, who are now bidding for entirely independence from this, uh, this mess that has been uh, created since 2011. And that's the makings of this so-called coalition, which the Obama administration, with some of the very guys who are now back in power with, uh, uh, with the Biden administration, Samantha Power, Victoria Nuland, Susan Rice, Blick Kling, Blick Kling, his name is, um, they're all part of this uh, old uh, period of 2015 where they pulled together otherwise rival GCC countries, G uh, UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, who are actually at each other's throats. They're at this stage themselves in financial dire straits. They've been borrowing heavily uh, for, for, for over a decade. They, there's a lots of pressure on them to sustain their 
development uh, uh, profiles, keep hiring very expensive uh, Western-based, especially American companies to keep building infrastructure they don't need. And in the meantime, they're being pushed into enforcing the demands of the so-called international community to bring back Hadi to power. Yeah, and this I, is start. Yeah, sorry. I'm just going to add, like, I, I simplify, but this is kind of uh, one of the ways I, I look at it. I, t- I tend to focus a lot on globalism and this this push for you know global mm-hmm. do- global dominance. And uh, for me, it's like this imperial globalist system wants to control the entire planet, and it cannot allow any independent sovereign territory or, or, or peoples uh, to be left alone and has to, you know, destroy their countries or, or, or whatever, and then plug them into this system through which then it, it will, you know, extract, control those, those territories, extract the resources, you know, tell them how to live. And it feels like, you know, one example, you know, Yemen, it, it can't be left alone. It has to be plugged into this, as you outlined, IMF, Bretton Woods system, imperial system, um, with all these U- U.S. Uh, European interests as well as the elite Middle Eastern interests, and you, you, and no territory can be left alone. And and Precisely. yeah, and and, and um, I, I also wanted, uh, you know, this week marks the seventh year anniversary yeah. uh, of the war um, in Yemen, and just to get your thought on, you know, what's the current situation, and yeah. after seven years, what are you most thinking about, complaining about, hoping for when it comes to this war in Yemen? Right. Since Yemeni stood up and said, we are not going to be forcefully uh, integrated in this global economy, which clearly sees our re- assets, our resources being uh, sequestered away by some uh, ascendant uh, neighboring power who are uh, clearly uh, already deeply insinuated in this globalization process. Much more uh, Saudi Arabia or UAE or Qatar would be much more reliable in controlling Yemeni's uh, uh, wealth than Yemenis who have clearly proven to be independent over the course of the last hundred years and would resist and do resist. Uh, the assumption was that with air superiority, with this rather crude uh, orientalist racist uh, understanding of what Yemen constitutes by some of these scholars who have become now um, the, the people, the, the go-tos, uh, references to, to, uh, and experts you find them now in the crisis group in Brussels, you sign them in, see them in Georgetown University or elsewhere, they all thought that Yemen would be easily, uh, let's say, subdued with this so-called coalition. That couple of uh, days of very uh, nasty bombing, which uh, was very clear from the, right, from the beginning that they would go after and intimidate and terrorize people, and that would lead to uh, bringing everything back to where it was before, let's say, the fall of 2014, but it didn't happen that way. And what happened is that um, this so-called coalition very quickly after uh, the, uh, the end of the war didn't happen as imagined, the, uh, the rivalries within the so-called coalition start to manifest. And uh, for the last seven years, as much and as brutal as this war has been, from the air mostly, um, bombarding, destroying infrastructure, destroying the ability of northern Yemenis to eat, to, uh, to move around. Uh, bridges have been destroyed. Farmlands have been destroyed by cluster bombs. The, uh, the ability to produce food from factories to farms have all been cynically destroyed. Even water, uh, sources of water have been uh, systematically undermined. Uh, that being said, um, they cannot secure military victory uh, by uh, air power alone in these mountainous regions of the north. Uh, they have, however, secured, after some one year of fighting, large parts of southern Yemen. And it happens to be also where all the oil and gas is. But it's also one of the primary reasons why these coalition, so-called coalition, agreed to work together in the initial phases, is that they were hoping that they would get either a significant part or all of Yemen's uh, marketable assets as a reward for contributing to this um, somehow disguising global imperialism uh, project of forcefully uh, integrating Yemen into the global economy. And when the war did not end as quickly, it became clear that Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and UAE would start to use their own 
assets on the ground, their mercenary forces to fight each other. And that's what they've been doing. Uh, Southern Yemen uh, has been largely unmanageable and it's not been um, administered centrally. Um, you have this hottie puppet stuck in a hotel somewhere in Riyadh. You have the UAE um, in, in some corners of Southern Yemen with their own, again, local assets or mercenaries uh, securing especially uh, uh, some sources of oil and gas, which flows every day out of Yemen. Some 35,000, 40,000 barrels of oil flow out of Yemen um, uh, daily. So some Austrian company and, and the Hunt Oil that I mentioned before are profiting uh, from this, uh, this, uh, this production. And Qatari assets, this Islaf party, which uh, in 2012, 2013 looked like to be the ones who would dominate Yemen, uh, basically lost out the most. And it translated to when Trump comes to power into a dramatic shift as far as Washington is concerned in the, using their um, influence in the region. And Qatar became the odd man out because Qatar is associated with Clinton and the Bushes. Uh, and um, it, it, that led to the 2017 very public break between UAE, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, where Qatar was basically kicked out of the GCC threatened with military invasion by Saudi Arabia. Only Turkey would send special forces to save, basically, the Thani government from being overthrown by an invasion. And we're now sitting at a stage where every day is horrible um, uh, use of air power that constantly bombards northern Yemeni's population. Upwards of 23 million people live in this area under the administration of Ansar Allah this broad coalition um, in the north. Uh, they are fighting constantly along uh, uh, um, various fronts, which include the borders between Yemen and Saudi Arabia, which constantly goes back and forth. It's very difficult terrain up there. You're not going to have massive use of armor. You can't bring tanks up these mountains. So it's basically foot soldiers. Uh, and um, it's largely been a stalemate up there because, again, who's going to invade these mountains? Uh, Saudis don't have uh, reliable soldiers themselves. They mostly have hired Sudanese to go and die for them in this uh, front. The UAE has um, declared already two years ago publicly that they had so formally left the, the campaign in large part because of the tensions that had uh, translated into financial uh, distress in the country itself. There's all kinds of uh, interesting domestic politics currently in the UAE that has a lot to do with coronavirus politics, with, again, the shift in, in, in what has happened with the rise of the, uh, the old Obama-Clinton uh, regime, uh, with Qatar now being resurrected as the primary agent of American interests and globalization in this region, and Saudi Arabia, which has its continuous uh, issues with uh, sustainability as a uh, dictatorship with all kinds of competing elements inside the so-called ruling family that makes it a, a constant struggle over uh, uh, stability. The fact that they could not win this war that they could, they're hemorrhaging money left and right every day, fighting this war using air power, paying off these mercenaries. They're not getting much in terms of the uh, natural resources that they could uh, access at this stage. This is not a, a situation where you find, like in East Africa, where this cobalt was making, for instance, uh, the ruler of Rwanda extremely wealthy, Kigali, uh, and his, his allies and those who supported him. There is money being made out of the war in Yemen. It's being made from selling weapons, however. It's been from selling resources to these three countries that are competing with each other as much as trying to fight a, 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 a quite remarkable resistance to globalization, this Ansar Allah um, uh, coalition, who have now developed over the course of some four or five years through their remarkably talented military engineers we have to remember, I'll take us back for a second, that before this war started, Yemen had probably the largest military in, uh, in Arabia, for sure. And uh, it was ultimately broken apart by this war, and much of its air force was destroyed. 
Most of its ballistic missiles that uh, existed prior to the war uh, were destroyed, but they still had the know-how. They still had the engineers who all they needed was the raw materials and NVD. They've been building their own design, own designed drones, attack drones, smaller scale ballistic missiles, which has for the last four or five years been fired on occasion into deep, sometimes a thousand kilometers into Saudi Arabia, blowing up Aramco assets. Just last week, just today, in fact, they've destroyed another key strategic um, economic asset of Saudi Arabia. Uh, last week, they destroyed a desalination plant outside of Jeddah. They even attacked an electri uh, electrical power plant in Dahran, which is in the eastern part of Saudi Arabia. This was last week. Uh, in February, as a message to the UAE, they attacked UAE with their attack drones. So you have now a, 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 a war that is in many ways an unbalanced and unfair war, if you will. There's absolute air superiority, which is very expensive to maintain. You have American and British uh, technicians who are keeping and maintaining these planes, maybe even flying these planes, dropping ordinances, killing people left and right in northern Yemen. But on, on top of all this, you have uh, on, the, on the ground, actually, this, it's going back and forth. There are periods in which Ansar Allah are actually able to pool resources together to actually defeat this international coalition led and directed by the United States and the UK. And it's a remarkable story of the power of indigenous peoples who can organize, um, even though there's an almost airtight embargo on northern Yemen, uh, no food doesn't go through, no food or fuel can come through this embargo without it going through a process of screening. Uh, yet these northern Yemenis are on their own. They're not getting weapons from Iran, as often accused. There is, it's, it's very difficult for them to get weapons other than somehow getting it from capturing weapons that often flow to uh, these coalition forces. The coalition forces are not very effective. They have no wish to fight these very determined men um, uh, coming from, uh, from northern Yemen. And uh, as of last year, late last year, what's crucial about this war is, again, the, uh, the natural resources that could be plundered if there was the right, were the right conditions. Now, those are being threatened since as of late last year. This area called Marib and Shabwa, which are on, had long been the front lines, but had always been in the areas controlled by one of the three countries' assets. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, or UAE. They have now been under threat with direct military action from this Ansar Allah. And that has changed the dynamic considerably, along with the fact that with the Biden administration, you now have Qatar ascending again to being the primary asset for the United States to initiate through their Muslim Brotherhood assets in Syria, uh, in Lebanon, as well as in Southern Arabia to maybe change the dynamics of this war, which is just dragging on. It has in, uh, just, um, killed hundreds of thousands of Yemenis. Tens, uh, tens of thousands have starved to death or from disease. Uh, it's reported that millions are under threat of starvation. Uh, starvation and food has been uh, always been a tool of empire for the last 250 years, 300 years. It's certainly uh, being used as a weapon in uh, northern Yemen to try to force people to surrender. Uh, and uh, up till now, they have not been able to induce this kind of instability in the north to actually force an end of the war on American terms. And that, of course, implies that Yemen would have to subscribe to being integrated into the global economy that would benefit, first and foremost, empire, representatives of empire, not the people on the ground. And so, is this sustainable? It is not for the three regimes competing with each other who represent and who make up this so-called coalition. And I've predicted that um, at some point in time, you're going to see one of these three governments collapse maybe even seeing a break apart of maybe Saudi Arabia, which has already been a, a, a deemed a, a long-term uh, 
unsustainable failure because its own oil assets are drying up. It, uh, it tries to create this uh, buzz of interest in the larger world, trying to get people to come and invest uh, in, a, in a larger global uh, economic context where there is no liquidity anymore. Even the United States and Britain have a hard time borrowing money at, at relatively, uh, let's say, reasonable rates, let alone what is going now with this whole Ukraine-Russia uh, issue. Uh, these regimes are in big trouble. They have been in trouble already before the war started. They imagined that the war would actually provide them the kind of uh, resources that would allow them to survive another generation. This has proven to be um, actually not the case because of Yemen's stubborn resistance. And ultimately, we're going to see in the next, we are seeing um, attempts to now uh, reallocate uh, and redirect the narrative about what this war is about. Since late last year, uh, Ansar Allah has been called a terrorist organization. But with the arrival of the new um, Biden administration, with the old guard from Samantha Power, who's now head of USAID, she was under Obama, the representative in the, in the United Nations. Susan Rice, also um, an, an architect of the uh, wars in Rwanda and Sudan over the years, um, is also uh, very much invested in seeing a, a reversal of the direction this war has taken and dragged the United States into um, a, a new kind of relationship with the larger global economy that is in free fall in many ways. Corona has conveniently diverted our attention in 2019 to what was already a financial catastrophe. Uh, we've seen huge amounts of wealth being transferred over the last couple of years. The, the globalization process has been uh, uh, expedited and it's, it's turning into a, a, a period of plunder by a very small group of powerful interests um, who don't necessarily see the survival of Saudi Arabia or UAE or anyone else as a necessity anymore. Um, the global reset is about changing entirely the relationship that humanity has with uh, with, with planet Earth. Um, and maybe uh, this push towards new uh, types of energy, uh, which will be very lucrative for those who actually have a monopoly of that a new technology or uh, the directions in which our societies are going to be organized will mean that uh, uh, the war in Yemen will have to uh, um, find, uh, find a way to end in a way that, again, will be acceptable by those who are, have an invested interest in uh, uh, seeing Yemen being subjugated. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Saudi Arabia, UAE, or Qatar uh, survive as states. Uh, Yemen, for sure, will never be unified again. I'm sure of that. Uh, but there's no guarantee that Saudi Arabia, for instance, doesn't go the way of Iraq or Syria or Li Libya or Sudan. Uh, the UAE has demonstrated uh, for the last two years lots of tensions internally. Uh, Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi are uh, direct loggerheads. They're uh, going in different directions and trying to secure uh, external um, uh, financial supports to sustain their otherwise unsustainable economies. Uh, you can see that played out in how they actually enforce uh, regula health regulations, so-called health regulations over corona. Very, two very opposite, uh, going in opposite directions in that regard. Uh, and so in the meantime, this horrible war continues. There's been a ratcheting up of bombing. Um, last year, there was uh, uh, a one of, let's say, a, it's horrible to say this, but a relatively slow period of, of trying to find ways to uh, at least come to uh, regional, local uh, ceasefires to exchange uh, prisoners, less bombing, therefore. This year has seen an uptake in bombing, far more bombing already in the first three months than there was for the whole of last year. Uh, there's an attempt to, I think, under the new Biden administration to end this war. In, on terms that would be most serving the interest of their allies, Qatar. Uh, it, this uh, re has resulted in, um, especially the UAE, 
um, venturing into new kinds of alliances. It has uh, abandoned all um, pretext uh, and abandoned its association with the Arab world entirely and embraced the alliance with Israel, which is not necessarily over the long term a good thing for the UAE. Um, they are desperate to, again, to somehow survive financially uh, this period of transition in the global economy. Uh, but in the meantime, they've also made overtures to the enemy of my enemy. Uh, so Syria has now, um, and Bashar Assad, to the um, frustration of many who believe that Syria was one of the last enclaves of resistance to uh, uh, this process of globalization. I mean, why else did we have this horrible war over the last 10 years in Syria, if not to resist the very um, temptation to go the route of forming an alliance with Abu Dhabi. But here we are. Um, last week, the last couple of days, Damascus and, uh, and Abu Dhabi, at a formal level, literally had meetings. And what's that all about? I think I suspect it has a lot to do with uh, the, the factor that Qatar has been resurrected as the primary asset moving forward for this Biden administration. Uh, which includes uh, the war uh, in uh, in Ukraine uh, over where oil and gas is going to flow into this European markets. Is it going to come from Russia? Is it or is it going to come from Azerbaijan and Qatar and the eastern uh, oil fields of uh, Saudi Arabia via pipeline? Pipelines that had long been envisioned. They had already uh, laid out the financing for this. All they needed was a compliant government in Syria. Um, the Islamic State that was created briefly through Daesh and other um, American imperial assets uh, would have uh, been a, a compromise. But with Russia jumping in in 2015 and eliminating that potential um, uh, solution to supply chain uh, issues that would have benefited uh, Erdogan and Turkey, would have benefited uh, the Biden and neocons who had taken over power in Washington. Uh, who are heavily invested in in uh, energy companies that were uh, uh, making big money off of supplying Europe with natural gas. They would have made a killing if they could divert the oil and gas flow from, uh, let's say, Russia, Belarus, to uh, the South Stream pipelines that they were envisioning, including, uh, we have to remember, Israel, which is a major producer now of natural gas, it has virtual control over Egypt's natural gas, Palestine's, and certainly is threatening to steal Lebanon's natural gas assets off its coast. And if Syria would have fallen, and this is something clearly that UAE and Damascus now don't want to see happen, and they're willing to at least talk about a possible future alliance in this scramble for survival in this transitional phase of the global reset, uh, we, we could see uh, uh, new kinds of configurations that uh, does not marginalize the, the Yemeni story. Yemen is very much part of all that, but it is a different theater for this much larger global globalization process, resistance to it, and an adaptation to the contingencies created by the ability of Yemenis to resist. The persistence of a, a, a Iran uh, influence in uh, through Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, uh, the ability to push out Israelis when necessary, as happened in 2006. Uh, where we're going with this now, with the Russian-Ukrainian war, uh, to a large extent determined by uh, uh, what happens uh, with and has ultimately energy that needs to reach Europe come from Russia or does it come from? The, uh, from Central Asia and the Middle East via Syria, via Turkey. Uh, so um, in the meantime, tens of thousands of people are dying every year in Yemen without uh, much of uh, any attention from, uh, from, the, from what mainstream media, let alone even progressive media on uh, the internet. Yeah, I, I wanted to touch on that actually for uh, as one of the last uh, points. Going back to the to the numbers as well as uh, Ukraine and 
this hypocrisy um you know according according to the un the number of civilian deaths in ukraine is 760 and according to the ukraine president the number of soldiers who have died in ukraine is 1300 i'm taking that from a secondary source there was an article posted on 21st century wire uh patrick uh, patrick hennigson's 21st century wire who i guess i can call my my colleague now because we both work at tnt tnt radio it's funny but um I don't have the exact numbers on, on Yemen, but I've read that more than 10,000 children have died and that a total of 377,000 people have uh, been killed. And for me, this is kind of like um, all the I, I will not let anyone today bully me with, you know, everyone wants you to put up a Ukraine flag and, and, and worship at the altar of, of Zelensky. And for me, it's like a shameless double standard and hypocrisy where, you know, um, uh, these wars by the West against Yemen and Syria have been ongoing, and you can see these numbers far outstrip Ukraine. It's like no, we can't talk about Ukraine until we first talk about you know Yemen and and Syria, and it's total hypocrisy. And I will not let myself be be bullied by this whole Ukraine uh, narrative that's ongoing. And and you know, what are your thoughts uh, on that? Well, there's clearly an investment in first and foremost. Uh, I don't know how, where where how you understand the whole. Um, health crisis of the last two years, but that was also a cover and a front, for, as I said, for the financial catastrophe that uh, has been um, happening in, in very much without much attention paid to it, but also the dramatic uh, concentration of power that um, has uh, uh, um, followed and runs parallel to the regulation of people's movements, uh, whether or not you can go to work, whether or not you can eat in certain places. And, uh, and that just shows you that uh, with certain uh, control over uh, how we talk about things, um, large seg segments of the society can very quickly be moved into think in panic, in a panic mode. Certainly happened with corona, and they have basically used the same resources to, within a week or two, instigate almost um, hysterics over uh, the the evil Russian, you know, the, obviously it's a resurrected kind of narrative about the Soviet from the Soviet times, but it it, it is quite remarkable just how quickly uh, such a large spectrum and across many so-called ideological divides, you could have people completely fixated on um, the narrative filtered through uh, these media outlets, with the result, of course, a continued blockage of any information about what's going on on the ground uh, that is not uh, satisfying the narrative, let alone what's happening in other parts of the world. Um, which, in the case of, you, you can be in, in, in Lebanon, where you're suffering from, by the way, economic uh, uh, um, embargoes by the United States, trying to create conditions that, as such that would make it impossible for some political uh, uh, orientations to succeed uh, in, in surviving in uh, Lebanese politics. People have one hour a day of electricity in Lebanon. Uh, their banks have basically, uh, just like what happened in Greece in 2008, they've forced Lebanese to, um, uh, to take a haircut. They've lost their life savings. Uh, the, um, the, the, the leader, the currency is uh, depreciated for, from the $1,500 to now $25,000. And uh, so people throughout the region have been screwed royally during this transitional period, 2019 today. And so the fixation on the Ukraine's narrative story, which of course makes it impossible for us to talk about Yemen or, uh, or any other crises that are happening in the world where people, indigenous peoples are being robbed of their, of their wealth and of their livelihoods. Uh, this is just another indication that this is a crucial battleground for any future hope of uh, breaking uh, the stranglehold that these globalists have on our, on our lives. Uh, we will have to find a way to communicate and talk about uh, a much more broader a range of things, connecting them in ways that are impossible now through the tools that we have now to communicate. Now, and, and I find that it's, it's fascinating, it's terrifying as well, because it's we're really at the stage now where they can actually manufacture crises. And this is not only happening because of the wars, the battles that are taking place on eastern Ukraine. This is also now a, a crisis that people perceive about 
food security. Uh, and we will see, we will be manipulated to start thinking in terms of that we we'll, don't actually have uh, guaranteed food supply. This will transform domestic politics in many, many different parts of the world. And it, if it's not, ha has already. And this also bears um, incredibly on the Middle East because much of these countries, uh, poorly planned, have become dependent on importation of food. This is one of the things that Yemenis were ultimately uh, in the 1990s forced to do, was to abandon being self-sufficient in food. IMF encouraged them to invest in, uh, in industrial-scale agriculture where they could go export uh, some commodity like coffee or something or cotton and basically import cheap wheat from global markets controlled by two or three major players, whether it comes from the United States, Argentina, or Russia, Ukraine. And this is certainly going to now have an impact in the Middle East. And one of the reasons why we had the Arab Spring in the first place was the rise, sudden rise of food prices, also the collapse of, uh, of uh, equity markets. Uh, when the Egyptian stock market crashed, that's when you had the revolution. So we could very easily see already um, fragile communities in these fragile countries burst out in violence if we're not uh, careful. And I don't think this is a, a big uh, jump to conclude that this could happen also in Europe. This could easily happen in parts of the United States. And uh, we see in many parts of Latin America also uh, uh, pockets of, of, of resistance, of violence that can be organized, that can be easily suppressed. It depends on conditions. But we are now being led by the nose, by the same media that has got half the world convinced that Russia and Russians to the very last Russian cat, right, is evil, that we're going to get into a period of a panic over food, probably another round of some health scare that, that they will conjure up, and who knows what else. So this is a very worrying time indeed. I agree with you. This is, um, we, and we've seen it now going on for the last three years, and replaced from Corona to Russia and uh, food and what uh, climate change, whatever. What else is awaiting us? We'll have to see. But hopefully with we have learned a little bit of something these last two years. It appears not, unfortunately, for a large number of them. Yeah, well, one thing I had also wanted to mention that bothered me was um, we've seen Prince William uh, say this and European pundits, a host of them, uh, openly saying on the news how European lives are more uh, valuable than lives <laughs> in, in the Middle East or elsewhere. Mm -hmm. and. I'm a European, but that you know that bothers me. Like no life is more important than than any other, and so that's openly you know uh, racist right there. And I would also bring to people's attention. You mentioned Assad. There was a great clip going around uh, just yesterday or this week of Assad. I, he gave a powerful speech, basically saying how the West has its its mask has come off. Uh, and that also it's it's on the decline and, and the some parts of the rest of the world, the East, are, are forming blocks and, and coming together. And yes, indeed, on the Great Reset, I, I want to have you back on uh, in the future to talk Global Reset, Great Reset, because, uh, because I've seen you on social media talking about this and com commenting uh, on it. And so it's your, your view is also uh, interesting. And so where uh, would be the best place for people to follow you and, and follow your work? Uh, follow my work, uh, type my name. Uh, find pirated versions of the book on Yemen if, if that's uh, something that's interesting. Otherwise, I've, I've given some interviews like with you uh, and they're available on YouTube and I have a Twitter account. It's just my full name. And I mostly um, follow things that you could then uh, investigate yourself if you're interested in what I've identified as interesting for myself. Yeah, all right. Uh, I'd uh, recommend everyone follow Isa on Twitter. Uh, also purchase his book uh, if you can. Um, and yeah, we'll be talking uh, again soon. And uh, thanks for being back on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com. And I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. 
It's nearly impossible to find geopolitics and empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.